In our study of the book of Acts, we come to the first physical, detailed miracle. When you're studying the Gospels, it's really easy to kind of get the idea that miracles are happening all of the time. You get into the book of Acts and you get the idea they're happening all the time. And so people will ask me, why doesn't God do miracles at the rate that he was doing them in the, the days of the book of Acts? Now, we understand the ministry of Jesus. The miracles were there, spoken of, first of all, in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would do wonders in order to identify who he is. So we understand that. And really, there's not as many miracles as you might think, at least detailed miracles. Jesus healed people all day long at one point. A lot of people being touched and healed as he prayed for them. Uh, Jesus went into um, his hometown of Nazareth and said he couldn't do many miracles there because they didn't believe. What did that mean? It didn't mean they brought people to him that he didn't heal. It meant they didn't believe, so they didn't ask. And today, I think we don't receive from the Lord because we don't believe enough to be able to ask. So there were a lot of miracles that were done, but as far as details of the miracles, there's not that many. For example, in, the, in Jerusalem, although it says Jesus healed people, many people in Jerusalem, we have details of two of them. That's the Pool of Bethesda and the Pool of Salome. And we learn something from each one of them. From the Pool of Bethesda, he comes to a man who's been there for 38 years, and there's a stirring of the water, and there's this idea that the first one who gets in gets healed. And, and, and Jesus comes to this guy that's been there for 38 years and says, do you want to be, do you want, do you want to be healed? And the guy's like, well, I've been here for 38 years. And Jesus is like, yeah, but you, do you want to be healed? And we learn that we have to receive him, that we have to know that we have a need and we want him to come in and fix our need and we need to invite him. We learn that from the details of that miracle. From the pool of Siloam, Jesus rubs mud in a blind man's eyes, makes spits on the ground, makes mud, rubs mud in his eyes and says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash out your eyes. Now, the blind guy's probably like, no problem, I'm on my way. I got dirt and mud and spit in my eyes right now. But he does go to the pool of Siloam, which Jesus told him to. He could have cried out for water. He could have gone to the first place he could to wash out his eyes. But by faith, he goes to the pool of Siloam. He then believes Jesus is a prophet. And before the account is done, he confesses him as the son of God. So there's this process that happens that starts with a step of faith. You begin by doing what Jesus asks you to do, and then God begins to move to where you learn more about Christ until there is a complete and a total confession. Well, this miracle in the book of Acts is not a lot different. We get details on it, but God's using this miracle to do a couple of other things. Number one, and first of all, and we'll see this today, is for Peter to be able to launch into another sermon. And it's an evidence-based sermon. He shows them the evidence of why Jesus was the Messiah as he makes his way through this chapter. And then immediately in our study next week, we see that there is now um, opposition to the gospel. There, there are people that are now upset. They see this miracle, and they, and they see what happens in the name of Jesus. And there's going to be opposition that is going to cause them to be spread around the world. It's the opposition in Jerusalem that causes them to leave and the gospel to go around the world. So God does things in God's way that are different than we would normally do them. And that starts with him doing a miracle. Now, um, I believe that God does miracles today. We talked about that at our Easter service last weekend. Uh, this supernatural is around us. 
Um, as you talk with people, as you interact with people, they will tell you things that have happened to them that are supernatural. If you are struggling with whether or not God does miracles today, we live in, an, we live in, we're in the information age. We can find out anything. There are several books being written on miracles now. Uh, there's another one being written that's coming out soon by J.P. Moreland, uh, which I'm really interested in. Uh, but um, uh, Lee Strobel, who wrote A Case for Faith and A Case for Christ, has also wrote a book called The Case for Miracles. You can get it in an audio form and you can listen to it. What he does is take claims of miracles and documents them, goes and interviews the people that are involved in it to see whether or not these things are genuine. He uses his journalistic skills. He was with the Chicago Tribune to look into miracles. And uh, I told you last week about Craig Keener's uh, Miracles Today, which he does the same thing. He's a PhD and he goes out looking for the evidence for miracles. And I would encourage you as we consider miracles today, uh, to take a look at those if you're interested in more in how miracles are happening today and how God may be using those miracles. But let's get right into this miracle. This is Acts 3. We want to start in verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. They're still in Jerusalem. Jesus told them, Tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Again, it's opposition to the gospel that drives them out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right now, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going up to the temple. Their, their mind is on spiritual things. And I would, I would just remind you to keep your mind on spiritual things. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 6, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace to put your mind on the things of Christ. We're told in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So they're going to seek God in prayer. They're going to ask God to do something. And there's a miracle that happens along the way. Verse two, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. Now, we believe Jesus went in and out of the gate beautiful. He was laid daily at this gate. This would mean that Jesus didn't heal everybody that he saw that needed to be healed. There were those he did heal and there were those that he didn't. But this man has been there, he's been lame from birth. Um, if you look at the details of miracles and how they apply to our lives, it helps us to understand that we are, are weak and we have an inability from birth. God makes a way for salvation. Jesus did the heavy lifting at the cross. The Holy Spirit draws you you recognize the need in your life and you ask the Lord into your life. This guy sees his need. He's begging at, at the, the gate, which is called beautiful. And it says to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple asked for alms. They fixed their eyes on him with John and Peter said, look at us. So he gave them their attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have but what I do have I give you 
in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He is not declaring any apostolic powers. He's not saying I'm anointed and I can heal. He comes and says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It says then, and he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, God does a complete healing for this man. Uh, being lame from birth, he would not know how to walk. His muscles would be atrophied. Uh, it, it would even if he was healed completely, it would take him who knows how long going in our day, going to a physical therapist to be able to learn how to walk. But he does a complete healing for this man. There's an interesting video that you can look up. I'm sure you can find it. I meant to, to, to get the exact way to look for it today, but I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Uh, there was a woman that was at a prayer meeting. She'd been in a wheelchair for years. I don't know exactly how many. Uh, she felt tingling in her legs. She had felt nothing in her legs for a while, paralyzed. And she felt tingling in her legs. And so she went up and asked the pastor just to pray for her. So they began to pray for her. And they lift her up out of the wheelchair. And she begins to walk around the room. But it's obvious that her muscles have atrophied. She's having difficulty. Now, the, the, the miracle was a complete miracle. She's walking today. Still, the last video that, they, that you can look up of her, she's still not walking perfectly, not like, like you and I would walk. But God did a miracle in that. Well, here he heals this guy completely and totally. And he's going to do a work from this. The miracle isn't, doesn't stand by itself, but God's got something he wants to do that comes out of this miracle. So it says they were walking and leaping and praising God. He was excited and all of the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So they see it and they're focusing in on Peter and John and they're praising God. And this man's life is changed forever. There's a transformation. Now, when we come to Jesus, our lives are transformed as well. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, everything has become new. This healing of this man is a type of the transformation that can happen when we receive Christ. And he's going to get into that in the sermon that he preaches from this. This is a platform that gives Peter an ability to be able to talk about this crowd that is amazed. And so in verse 11, it says, now as the lame man who was healed, or excuse me, yeah, as the lame man who was healed, held on to Peter and John, all of the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's greatly amazed. When Peter saw it, he responded to the people, O men of Israel, why do you marvel at this or look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? I love the first thing that Peter realizes is there's a danger here. These people are looking at me like I was the one who did it and I didn't do it. It was God who did it. There's a danger today when God uses you. The pastors learn this quickly. People can come up and say, oh, I've so, been so blessed by what you do. It's really awesome. I, I, I've been so touched. And that's good. It's good to encourage someone. The Bible says give honor where honor is due. And if God's using someone in your life, it's good to say thank you. And God's been using you. And trust me, 
Pastors need that encouragement. I'll double down on that. Pastors need encouraging words. Uh, but you can also, you know, have a false sense of humility. You can say, when someone comes and says, hey, listen, the Lord has really used you to speak to me, you can go, well, you know, it's not me, it's God. And really what you're saying is, I've got such a special relationship that God really works through me. I found it much better to thank people for the encouragement and then to put the focus on God. Thank you for, for encouraging those encouraging words. They really mean something to me. And I'm so glad, glad that God is working in your life. So you're putting things back to God. God's the one who's doing the work. It's not any individual, but it's God doing it. But God uses individuals to do it. So Peter is like, why are you looking at me? As though I did this. And then he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. So he now goes back and says, Christianity at this point now is just a sect of Judaism. We, the same, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God that we serve in Christianity. It's the same God that established the Jewish nation. And he says he glorified his servant, Jesus. So he's taking the focus off of him. He's putting it on Christ. And he says, then who you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life. Now, remember how fresh the trial, the crucifixion and the resurrection is in the mind of Peter. It's been at most a couple of months since those things have happened, when he's preaching this second sermon. And so immediately he says to this crowd in the temple, you guys demanded to let a murderer go and delivered the one who was just to be crucified. He goes on to say to them, but you uh, denied the holy one and the just and, and asked for a murderer to begin to you and killed the prince of life who God raised from the dead. Now look at that term there, the prince of life. That's one of the names that the Bible gives us for Jesus, and it's unique to this passage. I couldn't find it anywhere else in, in the scriptures, the prince of life. Uh, when I was a kid, a teenager, I had a poster on my wall. Maybe some of you guys had this poster, and it had all of the names of Jesus on it. The I am, Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. It was all these different colors, right? It was a black poster with all these different colors that were on it. And I looked it up last night. I don't have it anymore, but I looked it up online to see if it had the Prince of Life on it and I couldn't find it. But what a name for him. The, you killed the Prince of Life and God raised him from the dead. That's what he says here. He says, but you denied the Holy One. No, excuse me. He says, and killed the prince of life, this is verse 15, and killed the prince of life, who God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So Peter now lays out exactly how this man was healed. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The Bible talked about us praying in the name of Jesus and whatever we pray in his name will be given to us. Now we have to pray, it says, according to his will. So we've got to find out what his will is, but we pray in the name of Jesus. This is why we end our prayers in the name of Jesus, amen. 
but I'm afraid, and even with my own prayers as well, I'm afraid that we end up with that just being the way we finish it. It's like, I'm done now praying in the name of Jesus, amen. Maybe we ought to give a little bit more emphasis on that and say, when we're asking God, Lord, reach out, touch my daughter, uh, uh, my grandmother, whatever it is you're praying for, and would you do this in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, knowing that we are praying in a name that God will move and God will do things for us. And he wants them to know, this isn't some power Peter has, but this is faith in the name of Jesus that has caused this man to be healed. If it was Peter, we wouldn't have Peter here today. If it was the apostolistic power that Peter had, which some people believe that they had the ability to be able to heal, they only had the ability to be able to heal in the name of Jesus Christ. And the apostles did it more because they were giving us the word of God. So miracles were fading away. And even though they still happen today, they are not as prominent because the apostles were giving us the word and the miracles were giving us signs. But it wasn't through them. It was through faith in his name. And that's the same way any need you have. Jesus said, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Any, any need you have will be through faith in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what Peter comes back to. He's like, you're looking at us like we did this. Well, you guys murdered Jesus and it's through his name that this man has received everything that he has. So that was verse 16. Uh, let me read from the beginning, that from the beginning again. And his name through faith in his name has made this man strong who you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So he's explained exactly what's happened with this miracle and the way that we receive from Christ as well. Then he says, yet now, brethren, I know you did it in ignorance and also your rulers. He's saying, you guys gave up a murderer, Barabbas. You killed the prince of life and God raised him up from the dead. But you guys did it in ignorance as so did your rulers. Now, whether they should have been in ignorance, I don't know. Jesus fulfilled so many prophecies. It should have been in ignorance, but it was. Verse 18, but these things which God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that the Christ would suffer has thus fulfilled. Now, he gets into the evidence for Jesus being the Messiah. This is an evidence-based message that he brings. And the evidence is that the Old Testament foretold that he was going to suffer and die. He called him the servant. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. Let me read you Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Think about what he just said. Verse 18, but these things which God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Listen to Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was oppressed. He was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison to judgment. He was declared, who will declare uh, his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. This, this suffering servant would die. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So that's Isaiah 53. We have a copy of the book of Isaiah 
that is dated to before the time of Christ by a hundred and something years. We, they came from the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1947. So we know that these things weren't added later on, but they speak clearly of the suffering of Jesus. So the first thing Peter does is say, listen, you guys did this ignorantly, but he suffered and the prophets told us that he was going to. Now he challenges them in their own faith. Repent, he says, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now, this is a statement of encouraging them to be saved. Repent, be converted, and your sins will be blotted out. Now, those three things. Number one, repentance is what you do. You repent when you decide, I'm not going to live this way anymore. Maybe God's been working in your life. Maybe God's been showing you that you need to change, that you can't keep going the way that you're going, that things are out of control, that you need help. And so now you come to Christ and you say, I'm done. I'm done living for myself. I'm now ready to live for you. And you repent, you turn, and then you are converted as you repent. The conversion is not you. The conversion is him. You repent, you turn, and he converts and your sins are wiped away, which again is not you. It's him. He's the one who's doing it. It all starts when you say, I'm, I'm, I need help. I'm done. Now, you might be here, you don't know Christ, and you're, you're, you're doing fine in your life. You're like, things are clicking. I don't really see any problems. I think I got things under control. I don't need to invite Christ into my life. Well, there'll probably come a point where you realize you need help. I, 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 we all do. We all need it. There will come a point when you do, and God will begin to speak to you, and I, I hope that takes place. But he says to them, repent, be converted, and your sins will be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What a great picture of what salvation is. From God's presence comes refreshing times into our lives and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. So he goes to prophecy. So now Peter has gone from conversion to the, being in the presence of God and that God's going to bring him back at the end of the world. And there are people today who say, well, I don't want to talk about prophecy. I don't want to talk about the end of the world. Well, then you're going to have to neglect about a third of the Bible because about a third of the Bible talks about Jesus returning. God gives us that hope that he's coming back for his saints and that he is returning. Now, he, he quickly goes back into another section of evidence. He's been talking about the prophets and what the prophets foretold. The prophets foretold his return. But now he says this in verse 22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now, Peter quotes Moses to the, the, those who are Jewish. There is no greater prophet than Moses. M Moses was to them the original prophet. Enoch was a prophet before them. But Moses is the deliverer. He was raised in Egypt with all the knowledge of the Egyptians. He was called by God to deliver them. He delivered them from the death angel with the Passover and then he led them into the wilderness, got the law, gave them the law. 
and then led them to the promised land. So now Moses says, there's going to be another prophet. He's going to be like me. And you're going to have to listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, then you're going to have to deal with God. That's what Moses said. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. Now, no prophet came along to fulfill that. Only Jesus can be the fulfillment of that. Why is Jesus like Moses? Because Jesus is a deliverer, because he became our Passover lamb. The Bible literally says he is our Passover lamb. He was crucified on the same day the Passover lambs died because the death angel will pass over our lives now. And just as Moses gave the law to the children of Israel, Jesus gives us the word. That's why in John 1, it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. So he is like Moses, but even a greater prophet than Moses because his is the final word. Now listen to what Deuteronomy says. Now he's giving, he's giving them evidence. Listen, Moses said this. So we go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy to hear what Moses said. This is Deuteronomy 18. We're gonna start in verse 15 and then go to 18 and 19. It starts off with Moses saying something and then Moses telling you what God said to him. So I'll, I'll show you that change in here when we get there. So in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18, here's what it says. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. So this is exactly what Moses is saying. The Lord, your God, is going to raise up in your midst a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you will hear and will raise up from them a prophet like you from among your brethren and will put my words, and now God's speaking, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require of him. So Moses says, there's a prophet coming. God's going to give him the words to say, and if you don't listen to him, that's going to be required of you. So the Bible says there's no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And this is all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. No wonder they got so mad at him when Jesus said things like, I only say the things that my father has given me to say. And then they wanted to kill him because he was calling God his father. But he says, I'm only giving you what has been given to me that I would give you. And I have faithfully given you what God has given me. He's claiming at that point to be the prophet that Moses talked about raising up. So he's given them two pieces of evidence now. It was foretold that the Messiah would suffer. And it was foretold that there was going to be a prophet like Moses. And Jesus is both of these. Now, he's not quite done yet. He's got one more. Verse 24. Yes, and all of the prophets from Samuel to those who follow. As many as have spoken have also foretold of these days. In other words, you can go back to all of the prophets and you can find each one of them prophesying about Jesus. And this is where we find the hyperlinks from the Old Testament prophets all the way up into the, what the Messiah does. Jesus told the two disciples on the Emmaus road that they were slow to believe the law and the prophets which spoke of him. Jesus told the enemies, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, his enemies. Jesus said, you search the, the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are they which speak of me. So Peter says, hey, look, go and search the prophets. They spoke of these days as well. Then verse 25, the last piece of evidence he gives them. You are sons of the prophets 
and of the covenant, which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God called Abraham out of Ur into the land of Canaan, told him he was going to give him the land and that he was going to build a nation from him. From Abraham came the Arab people and the, the Jewish people. And God has out of the, the chosen people, chosen that one of their descendants would bless all nations, out of the chosen people brought Jesus, who indeed has blessed all nations. Now think about when Peter's quoting this. It's early on in church history. The gospel hasn't gone around the world. They're still in Jerusalem. Now, maybe he remembers Jesus saying, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But he's looking at God's word here, saying Jesus is the one who's going to bless all nations. Christianity is truly, it, it's the largest religion in the world, and it is truly a global religion. Everywhere that you go, you can find Christians who are following him. We just got back from Israel, the Holy Land. And we pointed out everywhere we went, there's all these different groups from all of these different cultures from all around the globe that are going to this one place to see where these things happened. And they are excited. This happens to us more than once, but it happened on this trip where somebody who couldn't speak English wanted to be baptized. They didn't have anybody there to, to baptize them. So they came to us and said, would you guys mind baptizing this gal? She's going to need an interpreter, but would you guys mind baptizing her? Now it's happened to us more than once. We've bad baptized people from Asia, from Mexico, from uh, different parts of the world. Why we're in, they're just there and they're like, we want to be baptized in the River Jordan. Will you guys baptize us? We're like, Come on down, we'll baptize you. Uh, now Islam is the second largest religion in the world, but it is mostly centered in Islamic nations. I'm not saying that there aren't people who are Islamic that live in Tucson or around the world, because they do. Just not at the rate that it's happened in Christianity. Christianity is truly a global religion. There's not one center for Christianity. It is all around the world. And, and it takes part in all of the different cultures of the world. And you see that clearly when you see these other people from other cultures, because they're not dressed like us. They're not dressed like Americans. By the way, Americans, when we go abroad, we stand out like a sore thumb. We walk in somewhere and they go, that's an American, I can tell. I can tell by looking at that guy. That guy's an American. So he quotes this passage, which is a promise to Abraham that one of your descendants is going to bless all nations. Now we applies that promise to Jesus. This is his last piece of evidence. In Genesis 22, 18, here's what God says to Abraham. We go all the way back to Genesis for this. In your seed or descendant, literally, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Abraham left Ur and by faith went down to Canaan. And now through, through one of his descendants, all of the nations are going to be blessed. Then he says in verse 26, to you first, that's to Israel, because he's standing in the temple talking to them, to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away everyone from your iniquities. That's the purpose of Christ. That is the purpose of the church, that we establish people in a relationship with Christ, that your sins can be forgiven, that you have eternity. It's not that we don't talk about other issues. It's not that we may never talk about political things. 
But that's not what we do. That's not what the church is. When the church gets to where it's just talking about politics, it's a problem. When, when the church gets to the place where it thinks some other event or thing is more important than the gospel, that's a problem. We preach the gospel and never should we veer away from it. It doesn't mean we can't talk about other things happening, being right or wrong in culture. We, we can do that. Paul talked about cultural things in the Bible. We can do that, but never does it become more important or more frequent than the message of Jesus freeing you from your sins? Because even if we could solve a problem in culture, which we're, we're, we're seeing things change today in abortion, for example, even if we could solve a problem that's in the culture, we are still called to work in people's lives for eternity. That's what it's about. And he realized that. And with this, this miracle coming up, he came back to the place of their iniquities being forgiven. Now, he not only got the attention of these people, some of whom get saved, but it gets the attention of the enemies as well. And, and they're going to cause problems for these guys in the next chapter. And here's the crazy thing. God has his purposes in that too. God uses, a, uses or uses, a, if you would, the opposition to do the work that he wants to do. And we'll pick that up as we continue to make our way through the book of Luke. Stand with me, would you, of Acts. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. I need to be done because I'm saying things wrong. It's time for me to be finished. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to see this second sermon preached by Peter that comes on the heels of this miracle. And how he used this miracle, not to point to himself or to help himself, but to show who Jesus was and how if you have faith in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that things will be done in his name. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that amen is not just the end of our prayers or in the name of Jesus is not just the end of a prayer, but we are praying in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who changes things, who works in people's lives and transforms them. And I pray for those here who know they need you, that you would speak clearly to them in the name of Jesus we, of Nazareth, we pray, amen.